Hey kids, it's Mark Montgomery French. Before we start today's episode, I want you to know that I have a Patreon page. $4 a month of your support helps me bring you new music podcast episodes and new music YouTube shows and new live music talks and new music. Believe it or not, $4 goes a long way to help make all this happen. Go to patreon.com slash mmfrench to learn about it or tap the link in the podcast notes. And now, on with our show. Welcome to All Your Favorite Music is Probably, where we take a themed dive into popular songs and unearth the connections like fracking. I'm your host, Mark Montgomery French, music culture writer, film composer, YouTuber, and oil well enthusiast. And today's theme is All Your Favorite Music is Probably Songs You Didn't Know Were Covers, Volume 2. And my guest today is game composer, musician, and bon vivant Tracy Bush. Hi, Tracy. Hello, Mark. How are you? It's good to be here. I recently found out that our national anthem is a cover song. Oh, yeah, it is. You, of course, yeah, you know it is. I, I, you know, maybe I forgot. There's so much things I do know. Um, oh, for God's sake. We're, when I was a teenager, I worked at Dickens Fair. What's Dickens Fair, Tracy? Dickens Fair is a, uh, a Christmas-themed fair that happens every year in San Francisco. Back hmm. then, it was in uh, the Fox Theater in Oakland uh, or Pier 45, variously, depending on the, the year that it happened. Uh, and I was in a singing group called the Sons of Anacreon. And uh, we sang a song, which was the theme song of that group, called the Sons of Anacreon, which is a well-known drinking song of those days. And uh, it was a song to appeal to uh, uh, the god Anacreon, who had something to do with drinking. <laughs> um, and uh, Francis Scott Key was on a ship and wrote some lyrics, uh, and he set it to a drinking song in the finest remix tradition. Yes, and much like uh, Weird Al, America loved it. (laughs) 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 And now we sing it all the time. So I'm sorry, I didn't mean to steal your thunder No, 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 I'm setting you up. This this was an unsubtle segue. Nice. Well um, done. So, again, with all of these songs we're going to talk about, they were popular somewhere to some people. But you move it outside the country or outside of that group, and it's like, and it becomes the more popular version. That becomes the canonized version. So it's always interesting to go, I thought that was new. It's almost never new. Yeah. For example, one of our favorite bands from England is Madness. Oh, love Madness. And Madness in many ways, is the largest Prince Buster fan club I can think of. Oh, sure, for sure. And their song, One Step Beyond, is actually 90% the song One Step Beyond by Prince Buster and 10% a Prince Buster song called Scorcher. Because it's Scorcher where they say, don't watch that, watch this. And then the rest is Prince Buster. Prince Buster being a uh, major ska and rock steady artist from Jamaica. And in a traditional sense, when uh, when England was bombed by the Nazis. Uh, <laughs> by the way, one of Kanye's reasons he loves Hitler is because 
of the Neumann microphone. He's like, they can't be all bad if they made what's still considered to be one of the best microphones. And I'm like, actually, he can. Yeah, yeah, still, <laughs> he still can, bad. He can build a great still mic bad. and be not a great dude. It's, it's totally yeah, possible. Yeah. Much like uh, somebody can make really great beats and not be a good dude, Kanye. Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so there was the Windrush group of people who came on the Windrush boats from the Caribbeans after World War II to help rebuild England after the Nazis bombed it out and they brought their music. And that so the whole two-tone movement of the late 70s were the children of the Caribbeans who brought their music and their white friends and created uh, the second wave ska revolution, which is why we have madness hearing and playing an old Prince Buster tune, which we're going to hear right now. This is Prince Buster and One Step Beyond. was Prince Buster with One Step Beyond, a song that was made famous to my generation from the band Madness. I love second wave ska. Um, some of my favorite music altogether comes from second wave ska. Specials, English Beat, uh, uh, um, uh, um, Selector. Yep. Uh, all, of the, all of that stuff is just fantastic. And I missed most of it because I, I grew up in Germany and the only only stuff that wasn't German music that I ever heard. And German music is super weird. Uh, uh, the only German, non-German music that I heard was fed to us through AFES, which is the American broadcast uh, mm. uh, network. So I missed punk and a lot of that stuff. And when I came back to America in 82, 81, 82, that's when I finally began to hear some of the punk and ska stuff that was happening. And it was fantastic. And I loved it so much. Um I like what Madness brought specifically their energy and their enthusiasm to it. Uh, Cause that first wave ska stuff, Prince Buster is fantastic, but it is so laid back and so <laughs> yes. low key. Yes. One wonders if there was anything that was influencing the recording of said material. I can't think of anything from uh, Jamaica that could. Yeah. And I, I love move. how delightfully, out of tune a lot of stuff <laughs> yes it was just like it didn't need to be because who cared because it was about the vibe and the right. vibe was so good um 
Yeah, I just love that stuff. Shout out to Terry Hall of the specials who passed recently at the time we recorded this. Yeah. And it was I was actually quite touched by how many people around the world who I normally follow on my social feeds all were talking about how much the specials meant meant to them, how much he meant to them, how much Funboy 3 meant to them, which you don't oh, hear yeah. about quite so often. Somebody brought up the color field, and I don't hear about that very often either. But no, I agree. I, at the second wave ska, I remember seeing uh, the cover of the special first album in a record store, and it's like 79. So there's a Boston album cover and Ario Speedwagon and these seven tough looking, slightly gangster dudes in black and white all glowering. And I'm like, okay, this is totally not a Kansas album. I don't know what this vibe is. <laughs> gangster, little... Town, gangster Town's on that album mm-hmm. too, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, no, I. Let's hear it for a second wave, Ska. Yay! Hey. Oh, by the way, did you know, speaking of Ska, so Ska came to America, and Ska got kind of big West Coast, East Coast, not so much in the middle of America. Uh, and the biggest Ska act, I think, of all in America was uh, No Doubt at one point. And oh, no kidding. three members of No Doubt ended up in a Terry Hall video. If that's not respect. Oh, that for real is. Yeah. Absolutely. I forget the song, but uh, I'll put in the notes. All right. Speaking of artists who are not as popular as you think they would be, there's a guy named William Bell. And William Bell was a songwriter, performer as well, out of Memphis. In fact, he was the first dude signed to Stax Records. Kidding. And he was semi-popular in the blues circuit, R&B circuit, not much popular outside of that. But he did write a song you probably heard of called Born Under a Bad Sign, because Albert King did that and Cream did that. He also wrote a song with Booker T. Jones, you know that guy, called I Forgot to Be Your Lover, which was a minor hit. And then a reggae version recorded by your, speaking of a vibe, recorded by Lee Scratch Perry for a guy named George Faith. And that's the version Billy Idol heard and said, I want to remake this song, sounding nothing like the original or the Lee Scratch Perry version at all. And I believe that was his last big hit, I think. Um, um, maybe. Rock the Cradle of Love, I think, came after. Okay. We'll do a check yeah. on that. Um, we'll do a check. We'll check. Well, while we do the check, you're going to listen to To Be a Lover by William Bell.
And that was To Be a Lover, actually called I Forgot to Be Your Lover by William Bell, redone by Billy Idol called To Be a Lover. And yes, you are correct that Billy Idol's last hit in America was Cradle of Love, number two back in 88. And then... Um, Bupkis. <laughs> did you hear his album called Cyberpunk? I remember when it came out. I was at the Virgin Mega Store in L.A. Cause was, that was oh, yeah. Back then. What's the Virgin Mega Store? <laughs> What's the Virgin Mega Store? Right. I remember seeing it on the shelves and being like, well, that's a that's a new direction. Yeah, I, I heard it. And um, it sounds like he maybe read a chapter of some... Um, uh, some cyberpunk. Maybe he read Mondo 2000. Uh, yeah. I, I don't think he was really steeped in the culture. Um, not that it's a bad album. I just don't think it's... It's not necessarily Rebel Yell. Let's be nice. <laughs> <laughs> but I tell you, that that William Bell song, though, is just so good. Uh, just the horns on that track. My God, just the... Just that that Poltec thickness that you get from those kinds of recordings back in those days. Oh yeah, I mean, I just love just love the depth and richness of it. It's it's fantastic. Uh, not anything like what Billy Idol did. And uh, I think if you put the two side by side and said, "Test of time, what still sounds fresh and good," <laughs> uh, and it's it's always shocking. I loved the '80s. I loved living in the '80s. I loved music from the '80s. But it's always surprising to me how poorly some of that stuff ages. It's it's interesting, and especially like you could tell, like the moment a rock star got money in the '80s, they went, "Well, I'm gonna have to buy a Fairlight," <laughs> and you can hear that. What was a cool sound, the uh, the Orchestra 5 hit, uh, Wamp, that was in Order of a Lonely Heart, that was cutting edge in 83. Oh, yeah, then yeah. you hear it everywhere. It's in U2's Unforgettable Fire in the Bridge. It's in the outro of Princess Side of the Times. I mean, these are artists that had original sounds. And all of a sudden, yeah, they're yeah. like, how about we put a Wamp right here? And it just dates it. Oh, my God. It's like... And, and the funny thing is, is there are... In within the Fairlight, there are other orchestral hits, but people just like that specific one. I got I got it uh, as part of a plug-in package. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I got all these vintage synths. I was working right. on a project a few years ago where they're like, "We want to just lean on the late '70s, early '80s," and so I'm like, "All right, well, I'll just throw a bunch of money at this, these plugins." And within that, they had the CMI Fairlight plugin, and it had that hit. And I, I brought my <laughs> whole family down. I'm like, "Hey, listen to this." <laughs> What song is this? Ba, 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 ba. Um, and nobody got it. Yeah. <laughs> and they all went, yeah, daddy has a new toy. And then walked away. Uh, yeah. Okay, dad. That's funny. Speaking of money. Yes. Um, Blondie's song, The Tide is High, is probably the most, I'm guessing, expensively recorded reggae song. Because up to that point, almost every reggae song was recorded probably in Jamaica in probably a a mid-level studio, right? They didn't have the huge supersonic studios that we have in New York or L.A. So it sounds fantastic. I mean, it it sounds uh, unlike, of course, the original Titus High by the Paragons. And this is not a diss to the quality of the song. It's just a different vibe when you have money to throw by the recording. 
right? So it, 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 it's a completely different vibe when you have, you know, separation on every instrument, you have the best microphones on the horns, you have all sorts of time to get things right. And, you know, again, Lee Scratch Perry, how many tracks did he have? Four? <laughs> Eight, maybe? But it is great. And I thought the Titus High was a Blondie original for years because, let's see, it came out when I was 11. Uh, I had almost no access to uh, dub reggae in, in, in my household um, and found out later that they didn't either. They heard it on a tape when they were in England and went, this is great. We should do this. And funny enough, they wanted to get the specials to play behind them. And it didn't happen because they said no. <laughs> <laughs> no, mate, no, not no, going to do it. No, so, um, but it was a wonderfully snotty, eye-rolling no. Uh, and with that, I will play the original The Tide is High by the Paragons. Just like that No, it's not the things you do that really hurts me bad But it's the way you do the things you do to me I'm not the kind of man who gives up just like that No, the tide is high but I'm And that, my friends, was the original The Tide is High, made famous by Blondie, but recorded back in 1967 by the Paragons. So when the Blondie version came out, I said earlier that I grew up in Germany and we would hear American radio. Uh, and my only exposure to Blondie had been call me and a couple of other things mm -hmm. that was, you know, more poppy that made her popular. And this song came out, it was all over the radio in Germany. And I hated this song. Mm. I hated it because it felt to me like, like they were clearly trying to go in some other direction. That wasn't what I'd heard them do before. Right. But also it just, the cadence of it felt wrong. And when I heard this original version, I got that version more ah. because the, the, the groove is right. And where the vocals sit in the mix, where it hits on the beat, it makes more sense. But Blondie's version always felt more forced to me. However, in preparation for this podcast, if you and me talking, I listened to that on the, the car stereo in my car. I listened to Blondie's version a little bit more. And I have a new appreciation for it because it feels to me like a celebration of all the various types of music of New York coming together mm. because there's definitely a Latin influence in there with the, 
the the vibrato of those high horns. It's got that kind of Latin. Mm-hmm. It's got that that Latin feel plus the reggae feel plus what Blondie brings to New York energy. And it seems like a marriage of all of those different styles at the same time. Uh, and I found it actually kind of touching. Well, that's amazing. Speaking of Blondie, you mentioned hearing Call Me. Call Me was one of the few songs I think they recorded with Giorgio Moroder, who was German. So I was thinking, what German music did you hear in your youth that you remember liking or strongly disliking? Well, I could talk about this for a while because German music, what what you get exposed to with the other kids, uh, at the time, Scorpions actually was really popular. I can see Um, that. um, they were starting to come up and people were talking about scorpions. Uh, they actually played at a, a, a state fair, not very far from where I grew up in. And so we went and we saw the scorpions in like a beer tent. Like there it oh was, there's Klaus Meiner, like 20 feet from me. That's amazing. Uh, I, I had no idea who they were. Um, uh, so hard rock was kind of what was going around, especially mm. on the military bases. A lot of people liked hard rock. Right. Disco was looked down upon because of racism and homophobia. Because uh, again, the military at the time, yeah. very much kind of a... Yeah. Um, but there was also in, in German music, traditional music is very popular with the Germans. Mm-hmm. And uh, they have this type of music called Schlager, which is like kind of love songs that are very one, two, three, four. It's very, very Prussian, very organized. And there was this guy called Heino, H-E-I-N-O, hmm. was this Elvis looking dude with blonde, bleach blonde hair and big Elvis glasses. And he was like this big star in Germany at the time. You've never heard of him. No. Uh, and he was everywhere. Everybody was talking about Heino. And I remember listening to it because he sang Schlager. Got it. And it's like, what is this? This is like, I couldn't connect to it at all. <laughs> So I just lived for the weekend when we could listen to American Top 40 and I would be able to, you may want to cut all of this because who cares? No, But it's an interesting exposure, I feel, to like where I heard music for the first time. So things like Can and Krat Rock, Kraftwerk, that was not played. Wow. Okay. Didn't find out about that until I got back to America. I was like, that was down the highway from where I lived. I could have... I could have gone and talked to them. Kraftwerk was playing at the at the at the beer tent. Yeah, <laughs> trying no trying try, trying to get um, trying to get beer out of their computers. Uh, that's fantastic. I want to talk about Madonna. By the way, so at the time we are recording this, Rolling Stone, who I like to mock, just released as well. You should. Their top two hundred best singers. I saw and, that list. And they tried, I'll give them credit for going outside of just America. They found people in other cultures, other places. But Celia they, Cruz was high up there. Yeah. Celia Cruz. But they did miss. Now, keep in mind, they when they ranked their albums, it's 500. If they had ranked 500 singers, that would seem to be enough space to to, to explain to people with the great natural talent and the people with who are untrained but how are passionate and it would be big enough 200 is just a way to say we are going to look dumb worldwide <laughs> they didn't put Celine Dion on not my favorite singer but that's like saying I'm going to rank the most popular weapons in the world and ignore the bombs dropped 
you know, on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Like, uh, oh, I, yeah, well, yeah. I'm just not a fan of foreign bombs. That, that's silly. Um, they also didn't put on Madonna. And again, not my favorite singer, but in terms of a voice that, that is relatable, that is sure. memorable, that can sing all kinds of songs, actually. Uh, and we've and part of what they they were judging was influence. I'm like, she definitely influenced a lot of people who uh, thought they could not sing well before Madonna. If you were going to sing a disco song, you need a Martha Wash level voice. You need a yeah. voice that could melt paint. Yeah, a voice that was a weapon. Yeah, you can't fake that. And she said, "I'm going to find another way." And and if that's the biggest influence, I don't know what is. And they and it wasn't like they didn't know who she was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no kidding. Who was Madonna? Uh, if, you, if you don't have Madonna, there's decades after her of mediocre blondes with auto tune that have their whole livelihoods to thank for her. Which is insane. Uh, so I want to talk about the song "Ray of Light." "Ray of Light" is a cover song by a. Not well-known folk duo out of England called Curtis Muldoon. The only other way you may have heard about Curtis Muldoon, that the two guys, Dave Curtis and Clive Muldoon, were in another group with Steve Howe of Yes. He left Curtis, the, the previous band to then, I believe, just join Yes. So probably a good move for Steve Howe. Yeah, well done, um, Steve Howe. But, by the way, have I told you my theory that... Um, Frankie Goes to Hollywood's Welcome to the Pleasure Dome is a secret prog rock album? No. Okay. But uh, I'm kind of with you on okay, that. I'd so, love to hear an exploration. All right. So what's the big double record set from Yes? Uh, Tales of Topographic Oceans? Yeah, yeah, Tales of Topographic Oceans. Okay. Yes. They're both double record sets. They both basically, the first side is essentially one long song. And they both have Steve Howe playing guitar on it. That's a very interesting point that you make. There we go. That's my conspiracy. And they were also both produced to death. <laughs> yeah, and Trevor Horn, the producer, was also a member of Yes. Uh, also a member of Yes. Yeah. It gets deeper. There we go. Just uh, worlds within worlds. So Dave Curtis's niece is a person named Christine Leach, and she was recording a demo of their song, Seferin, because she liked it. And she was working on it with a producer named William Orbit, who also was working with Madonna on Ray of Light at the same time, that album. So she heard the demo and went, let's do this, which she's done before, which is my secret way of saying, listen to the first season version of songs you didn't know were covers. We cover Madonna song there too. Uh, and so that, with some of her lyrical tweaks, became Ray of Light. So now we're going to hear the inspiration, the one that gave her all the feels. This is Seferin by Curtis Muldoon.
And that was the hard acid rock sound of Curtis Muldoon and their multi-part opus, Seferin. Oh, the 60s. <laughs> why, why you got to be the 60s? The 60s. Uh, they were so hard, the 60s. By the way, um, you remember canonically when Dylan went electric. And it's easy yes. to see because it was filmed. And there's yes. a dude who yells Judas. And it seems so quaint now. He just plugged in. Yeah. Know, it's- he, he wasn't performing live vivisections. I mean, it, that... They just, it- they just can't hear me back there. That's all I'm doing. <laughs> it's really a public service. Right. And they booed. Oh, my gosh. Um, actually, I look at that and I think, you have no idea what this man's going to do later. Like, um, license the times they are a change in to a Victoria's Secret commercial. You don't know <laughs> the, what, how, how Judas-y the man can be. Just you wait. Hey, money over Everything. <laughs> everything. Sp- speaking of money over everything, this yeah. is a song about a cover and a lawsuit. It's going to be great. Oh, fantastic. So George Harrison wrote My Sweet Lord, didn't know what he was going to do with it because it's 69. He's in the Beatles. He's not going to make a solo album. No. So he's producing Billy Preston. Billy Preston's on Apple Records. He goes, here, you're a gospel guy. I wrote a gospel song. Billy's like, sweet. That's got God right in the title. Yeah, ish. Now, of course, Apple, as as people may know, um, Apple Records was not the most well-managed artist owner label. No kidding. So his version of My Sweet Lord comes out within a month of George Harrison's My Sweet Lord. Billy Preston's gets to number 23 on the soul chart in America. And George's becomes uh, the world's theme song. For <laughs> that year. Yeah. For that year. Uh, which is sad because Billy Preston's version is quite good. In fact, we're going to hear it right now. Here is Billy Preston doing My Sweet Lord. George Harrison, that was Billy Preston's version of My Sweet Lord. So, again, uh, between 1960 and 1970, the Beatles break up. Do they? I've heard. Um, It's funny. They keep releasing new albums. It's hard to tell. You have heard the Revolver remix, yes. I did. I did. It was actually you who pointed it to me. I live blogged it as I listened to it to you. That's right. You did. That's so fantastic. I did. 
This song is so good. Yes, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's great. Yeah, yeah, it's it's tomorrow never knows. I've heard it before. Yes. So what happens uh, is that all of a sudden, Mister, I'm not putting out a solo album. Puts out a solo album with three discs on it, and My Sweet Lord was a huge song. And then came the lawsuit. The Stefans had a song from 1963 called He's So Fine. And the copyright owner, known as Bright Tunes Music, said, hmm, this sounds like My Sweet Lord. So 1970, My Sweet Lord comes out. 1971, George Harrison gets sued for ripping off He's So Fine. At the time, Harrison's manager was Alan Klein. Alan Klein was also the manager of three-fourths of the Beatles, which broke them up, among other things. But uh, Al- Alan Klein's the guy who managed the Stones and then by 1972 owned all of their records. So just keep that yeah. in mind. He was a ruthless dude. <clears throat> ruthless. He had no Ruth. Had no Ruth. No Ruth at all. So because Alan Klein's Alan Klein, he and George Harrison split up. They stopped working together. And then after that, Alan Klein buys the copyright to He's So Fine and then tries to sell it to George Harrison. 1981, litigation is still happening. 1981, 10 years after this started, the judge was done and assigned the copyright to George Harrison. (laughs) No money involved. Well, 1981, 10 years after this started, the judge was done and assigned the copyright to George Harrison. <laughs> no money involved. Well, um, to be gained from this point on will go to you, Mr. George Harrison. Well, that's nice. It still took another 12 years for that to finally be done from an administrative version. But yeah, a song uh. about peace and love and Hare Krishna went through two decades of nonsense. So, two things about this song. Yes. Number one, I really like the Billy Preston version. I, I like the, the arrangement of it better. I think if George Harrison had arranged his version like the Billy Preston version, he would have avoided some of the trouble because hmm. the George Harrison version does seem so very overtly to to, to sound like he's so fine. Uh, and again, George Harrison said it was unconscious. I believe that. I write songs all the time. I wrote a song a couple weeks ago. I'm like, this is a pretty good song. And then I played it back for somebody, and they're like, you know, that's Freebird, right? And I'm like, oh, come on. <laughs> I knew it's good. See? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, that, that's a really good melody. And they're like, yeah, that's Freebird. Um, so I've been there. Uh, but the Billy Preston version, number one, I like the arrangement a lot better. And it's it's delivered, dare I say, more soulfully. Um, uh, cause it's, it's just a better song or a better version of it. I feel, well, I mean, different anyway. Yeah. But the other thing is, and one of the things I love about George Harrison's version is that is clearly John Lennon on the background vocals. It's 100% <laughs> John Lennon and he took no credit for it. Uh, and Ringo's on the drums. Yes. And, and it just shows that the magic, that the camaraderie was still there. More or less, but it's 100% John on the backing vocals. And when you look at who they say the background vocals are, it's like it's Cyril and Bert or something like that. Right, right. Like, and he won't take credit for it. I think Peter Frampton finally said he played lead guitar in there. 
and yeah. he didn't take credit for years. And uh, um, no, he decided years later to b- go into the Sgt. Pepper movie. So I guess that was his uh, way of dealing with the, the Beatle thing. Uh, but and that worked out so well for it him. Worked out so well, and for all of us, really. Yes, I will say that I agree with you that it's a more gospely version. But also, I also realize that George probably could not have sung it in that way and made it sound legit, you know, like no, it's, it's not George, George's style. No, George's, <laughs> I think it's really funny that when they got together to do, um, when George and his buddies decided to do the traveling Willowberries, at some point they said, let's make a skiffle album of all the things to do. All the things to do. I, I feel also, by the way, that Billy Preston is extraordinarily underrated Completely. as a musician, as an artist, as a singer. I went through this phase where I was listening to old R&B songs from the 70s and the 60s and stuff like that a couple mm-hmm. of years ago. Where I was like, what else were we going to do, right? <laughs> so I just did a deep dive on some R&B and uh, that song, uh, With You, I'm Born Again, came on. Oh, yeah, with Sarita. I was listening to. And just his vocals are so good and so tasteful. And the song is a little overwrought sure. and, and kind of of its day. But at the same time, it's beautiful. And his vocals on that are really strong but subtle. It's good work. It's um, amazing. I mean, he basically joined the Stones. I mean, at one point, Mick would leave the stage to let Billy do a mini set in the middle of their set. Nobody does that. Mick Jagger. <laughs> Mick Jagger's not giving up stage time to anybody. He went, no, Billy's that good. Yeah, yeah. Recognize the skills. Absolutely. You know, it, it's a trip. Speaking of deep dive into R&B, I can't believe we didn't plan this. And we didn't, truly. <laughs> there was a singer named Linda Lindell. And Who now? Linda Lindell. And she also was on Stax. We're just going to go through Stax records today. And she got into the studio with the musicians and essentially improvised the original version of What a Man. The Salt and Pepper song we know and in vogue, that was a Linda Lindell song. And I'm going to play for you now what she basically made up on the spot. So this is Linda Lindell's What a Man. was not Salt and Peppa and in Vogue, but in fact, Linda Lindell singing What a Man. Now, I had no idea. I heard Salt and Peppa's and in Vogue's What a Man when I was a kid. I'm like, oh, what a great original song. No, they pretty much just, you know, 
to quote the great third base, they took the record and they looped it. They looped it. Not that they did it poorly, but uh, she really made, that was the song. She, by the way, probably one of the only white female singers to sign to Stax Records, which is why we haven't heard of her because the Klan was upset that a white woman would dare hang with black musicians. And then she basically left the music industry for about 25 years. Oh, God. But, but that's a pity because that song is fire. Right? It's and she made really, it up, which really is good. It, it, Just it, for, for out of nowhere? Come on, son. Have you been to the Stax studio? I would love to, but I, I have never. I was in Memphis and literally ran out of time. I was there for work, and I passed it by on the taxi on the way to the airport. Although I did have breakfast at the Stax Diner in the Memphis airport. It was not oh, the nice. same. Not the same. Uh, uh, no, no, not quite the same. <laughs> but I think uh, with this song, again, the horns, the production, my God, just... And and as far as I could tell, it was mono. At least the version I was listening to was mono. And just how good it is and how much sound they pack into that signal is nuts. And you know, for those of you who are not into the fine depth of recording, think about if, if you're not a person who records at home through your computer, you probably know somebody who does. And... What the difference is, is that these people had large metal devices, transformers, transistors, machinery that would heat up sound and do things to it that your ears liked. And it's hard to describe, but a lot of times it's just warmer. It sounds more yeah, alive. Yeah. It actually is making microfine changes to the sound because it's an analog piece of equipment and it's you could think about like breathing you know breathing is is rhythmic it also isn't dead on and so these imperfections these slight things you might call distortions all compressed together to make a sound you go yep that sounds great <laughs> that's fantastic and it's weird that it would work that way and uh uh you know part of part of my gig is understanding harmonics and distortion and how you how you use them together well harmonically or enharmonically as the case may be um but it's just staggering to me how they get that sound and uh, i know we're going to revisit this later because i'm going to have to want to talk about it that that specific 60s sound, that vintage, you know, no metronome, so the time wasn't wasn't 100% perfect. Uh, uh, just getting everybody into a hot, sweaty room and just banging it out and like take seven is the one that you go with. Just the 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 sound that they're able to capture with that, uh, it, it's it was impossible to duplicate later on. And one of the things the 80s suffered with. And and pop music as a result to just talk about what a man briefly the uh, the version that uh, Salt and Pepper did was you're 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 running these horns now through through you know the the DX7 or or uh, probably a D50 at the time was probably what they were using in the studio or or any of those uh, Oberheim samplers any of those kinds of things and and they sounded fine but they just didn't have that distortion, didn't have that fullness. And so much of uh, brass in particular suffered so hard in the 80s and the 90s because people would be like, oh, I just got a synth, I can do that on brass. And and you wouldn't get, I, I knew a horn player in college who's like, I can't get work. And he was a fantastic trumpet player, but he couldn't get work for love or money. I think the only brass sample I liked of the entire 80s was 
um, I think it was an Insonic used on Faith No More's Epic. That's a good sample. That's a good, that's, that, but I think it's half the Insonic sample and half the way Roddy Bottom plays it. He plays it in a way like he probably knows it can't do a whole lot of things, but it can do da 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 really well. And just did that. And I appreciate the tastefulness yeah. of what's probably, you know, a six bit sample. <laughs> well, I heard that the guy who played trumpet for uh, I Want Your Love by Sheik, mm-hmm. or was it I Want Your, your love. love? I, I want, want your, yeah. your love. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The guy who did that bit, just that bit, he's like, that's the best thing I've ever played in my whole life. <laughs> just that tasteful little. <laughs> And that to me is kind of like the stacks horn section. A lot of times they were just like, sometimes two people, right? It's a, it's a trumpet player and a sax player, and they're just playing bip, or or the James Brown stuff, you know. Well, sometimes it's just like bop, bop, bop. and yeah, it's just a great burst of energy right there within space. No, it's fantastic. Yes. Speaking of space, I want to talk about the difference between the Betty Davis eyes we know. And the Betty Davis eyes, we don't. I was dreading this conversation. 1981, Betty Davis eyes by Kim Carnes, like, had a chokehold on the radio, had a chokehold at MTV. The the concept of Betty Davis eyes was uh, all over America. Again, I thought it was new. Turns out it was written by Jackie DeShannon. If you know Jackie DeShannon, it's because she co-wrote and performed Put a Little Love in Your Heart, a relatively big song from 69. She also is uh, one of the uh, occasional co-hosts of Breakfast with the Beatles, uh, which I still love to listen to. Oh, that's right. I bet she heard the Revolver remix early. She probably did. So she had this version that that she wrote, co-wrote, in 1974. And it is, well, the Betty Davis Eyes version by Kim Carnes is mysterious. And this one is peppy. This one sounds like we're going to go down to Golden Corral, get some chicken fried steak, and play a song. And I will play that for you now. The original version of Betty Davis Eyes by Jackie DeShannon. if you can believe it or not, was the original Betty Davis Eyes by Jackie DeShannon. Ah. Uh, ah. Uh, okay. Couple things. Yes. Observations. Observations. Yes. Number one. Uh, hey, uh, how did we get into a burlesque show all of a sudden? <laughs> yes. 
That's number one. Number two, I love this bit of wordplay that I never got because Kim Carnes changed the words. Mm. Um, uh, it goes, uh, where does it go? Um, she'll expose you when she blows you off your feet. Oh, with the with the crumbs she throws you. Ah, that's what the original lyrics were, which in fitting with a burlesque theme. Yes, Kim Carnes changed that to uh, um, when she when she snows you off your feet. But that's not a thing that happens. So no. it, 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 thing. But the double entendre was was lovely, you know. And it's the seventies and a burlesque <laughs> show, apparently. I, I guess so. No, you can just see yes. like the the overly red lighting in the room. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Val Gary, G-A-R-A-Y, the producer, um, mm -hmm. who also did the motels, really did a, a very good job of hearing the song and, and thinking, it's a good song. I can make the recording better. Yeah. Well. <laughs> I can turn this, to hear this song and think, I'm going to make this a number one hit. That's that, well, You're digging deep. That's a producer. Because if yes. you heard this, and, and I love Jackie DeShannon, and I love everything she brings to Breakfast of the Beatles. She wrote a couple great songs. Seems like a very nice lady, but you hear this version of the song and you're not thinking at all. That's going to be a hit. No. That's it's, it's a deep cut on a B side of an album. Uh, uh, you know, cause you know, the piano player and he wants to get on the album. So <laughs> yes, like, yes. Song play ragtime on or whatever. Um, but to be able to hear that song and to think I can turn that into a huge, huge hit that takes a, a, a a level of, of confidence and uh, uh, imagination that not many people possess. No, no, that, that, that's, a, that's big ears, big creativity. So I want to talk about, again, a lot of these songs, they were famous to somebody and they were known to somebody, but not everybody. And I want to talk about the song, Valerie, that in America, we did not know. The Zootons yeah. had... Three big albums in England. The song Valley with a top 10 hit. We did not know it here because they were not as big here. Doesn't mean the song that they did was not good. It was, had just no footprint here. But Amy Winehouse did. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know if you've heard the Mark Ronson album version. I have. It's... it's um, uh, for those of you who have not heard it, it's Mark Ronson, a.k.a. you know the guy behind Uptown Funk. It's all cover songs. And if you ever said, my gosh, I wonder what would happen if old dirty bastards sang Britney Spears Toxic, you are in for a treat. So she, Amy Winehouse, loved Valerie. And one of the last major songs she recorded was a version of it with Mark Ronson. And that's the one we know, which is why we're going to play the other one. And this is Valerie <laughs> by the Zootons.
we're hearing Valerie by the Zootons or Zootons. I'm thinking it's Zootons. Zootons? Yeah, or 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 as I was saying, the Zedutons. The Zedutons. Okay, Zooton fans, please respond and leave me a vocal message of how to pronounce the band's name. I will appreciate it. And it, they do a great job. It's it's a great song. Um, oh, yeah, great song. It's got it's got mid to late two thousands uh, British uh, jangly guitar all over it. What's not to like? What's not to like? So uh, the, the the Mark Ronson. Oh, I'm sorry. Go no, ahead. no, no. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you, sir. The the Mark Ronson version of Valerie is funny to me because it's like he heard that song and said, "What if I did took that song and combined it with a town called Malice?" And then right. like, and it's basically that what that song becomes, <laughs> uh, taking it all the way back to second wave ska. There we go. Boom. Life Boom. is a flat circle, people. I think That's we right. just proved it. And the moon landing was faked. All conspiracy theories today on the podcast. And that is our show. Tracy, thank you once again for gracing the airways with your presence. Well, thanks so much for having me. I always appreciate that. Cool. And everybody else, that's our show. Come back next week where we will unveil another fun theme. And hey, please subscribe and comment because the algorithms go crazy when you do that. And check out my weekly YouTube show, Still Got It, where I review new music from vintage musicians. Yay, I did it. All right. I'll see you next time.